HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery, celebrating 100 years of being a dairy farm family-owned cooperative. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. We have to be that good news. This is what we have that no one else has. No one has good news. And I've thought that maybe we should have a little five minutes called good news. And uh, it could be maybe even situated at the end of a CNN. <laughs> 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 now we have you really good news. That, that was Alice Waters at Slow Food Nations this past July, calling for us to take time out of the nonstop doom and gloom news cycle to recognize that there are a lot of things worth celebrating especially in the world of food. We're taking her advice this week, which feels particularly important, and sharing some good news that we've been hearing over the past month. Consider this our self-care week. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. For our first bit of good news, Jessica Krancich has a look into the state of our farmers' markets, vital hubs of food, commerce, and social life. Farmers' markets play an integral role in the food economy and culture of New York State. By connecting rural and urban communities, farmers and producers have a reliable place to sell their wares, and urbanites have access to good, locally sourced food. The ladies of HRN's Happy Hour talked with Bob Lewis, ecological planner and co-founder of Green Market, a program of Grow NYC. He explained that not only is the farmer's market movement going strong, but is being driven forward by a huge wave of youth interest. I'd say that the um, extraordinary attraction of younger people into agriculture these days, people who are quite educated, who want to get away from a 9-to-5 lifestyle, who want to uh, contribute and who are capable of, of multitasking, working long hours, but seeing the independence of farming uh, benefit everyone, not just themselves, uh, raising a family. I mean, we've seen an extraordinary um, revival of this, whether it's in the Adirondacks of places you might not think along uh, Lake Champlain. They were down here. You, you know, you can't but help be amazed by 
uh, a couple thousand acre farm in Essex County along Lake Champlain with a giant CSA in New York City. We'd like to see them have more members with weekly delivery. I mean, that is amazing passion and, um, and, and expertise. Not only is there a revived interest in farming among young people in rural areas, but city kids are getting involved too. We've seen a huge growth in the number of youth markets. Now, folks may not know what that is, uh, but you know what's been happening in New York City um, is uh, growth in the number of youth farm stands that are actually substituting for markets where there aren't enough markets or farmers to go around. So we have uh, young people in their late teens, early 20s, being paid to operate a, a, a real farmer's market with real produce from the farms delivered by Grow NYC farmers. And we're seeing that uh, t- taking root everywhere. Just this past week at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden's annual Chili Pepper Festival, I saw an amazing example of such a farm stand. Red Hook Community Farm, which teaches teens the nuts and bolts of urban agriculture, had their own stall set up. They had a wide variety of hot peppers for sale by the teens who grew them, and they even led a cooking demo on the art of hot sauce. This is uh, both rural and urban youth. We're talking future farmers of America, kids from the Grange, but also kids doing urban gardening in Milwaukee or, or in, uh, you know, in Connecticut, in, in, in Hartford. So I have to say there's a lot of great op- opportunity to grow that, and it's exciting to see that. It's programs like these that ensure the future of regional agriculture. And visit Bob at the Fulton Stall Market at the South Street Seaport to sample some of what New York State has to offer. For our next story, we take a step back from the farmer's market to the farm. H. Conley has the story on a seed company that has biodiversity at the forefront of its mission. Rose 7 is on a mission to make vegetables taste better. It was co-founded by Chef Dan Barber, seed farmer Matthew Goldfarb, and seed breeder Michael Masaryk. Michael spoke to Lisa Held, host of The Farm Report, back in July about the company and the crops. It all started more than a decade ago when Dan Barber tasted Masaryk's honey nut squash, which Barber has described as 30% smaller and 1,000% more flavorful than the butternut. Honey nut was that, that eureka moment, Dan recognizing that there was this potential to be able to be more involved in the creation. Mm. Otherwise, chefs often get what someone breeds and a seed company decides to offer and a grower can make grow in their region and doesn't get a chance to participate. And as we work to get growers to participate more in the breeding process, the light bulb went off that as a chef, he had an invitation to participate more. And as a plant breeder, I I could see that what he was doing in the kitchen with my variety was something that uh, I wasn't doing. And I could select for not just a neutral taste of the squash, uh, I could select for something that would sing if it was roasted. Traditional plant breeding differs from genetic engineering in which a scientist manipulates one or a few specific genes. The thing that we're doing is we're taking all the natural biodiversity, and if I do a cross-pollination, we're combining, mixing tens of thousands of different genes, and there's all the nuance. Plant breeding is, a, it looks kind of like farming and seed saving, but right. there's uh, parts that we can apply a lot of appropriate technology. But in the end, it's something a really powerful that allows us to work with a lot of genetic diversity and also doesn't limit us to the the known. And so other with other approaches, we're limited to what we understand and what we can conceptualize. And we 
don't understand everything about the world. So plant breeding also lets us work with all the unknown maybe discovered along the way. Another major difference that makes Row 7 stand out is that many companies patent their seeds so that farmers have to buy new ones each year. Row 7 is committed to never patenting their varieties so that farmers can save seeds and breed them into even tastier varieties. In the beginning, they had seven crops in their catalog, hence the name Row 7, but they are in the process of developing many more. They work with seed breeders, chefs, and growers across the country to make breathtaking new crops. Like the yellow and orange badger flame beet, the deep purple Beauregard snow pea, and the color-changing Robin's Krogonaut squash, which announces to farmers when it's ripe. Many of the seeds available on their site are still in development. We started to realize we were onto something really cool, and we wanted to share it beyond just us. So anyone can go to rose7seeds.com and order a packet to several pounds of the seed. It's something for anyone to try and also not try before everything's finally done. So there's a chance for feedback. So it's not just something filtered and finished. Then there's a chance to participate in the development process with us, which is really exciting. There are multiple benefits to a tasty vegetable. Much of the flavor and aroma come from the higher concentration of certain nutrients, like beta-carotene and lycopene. Masaryk has a kindergarten-age son, so he's no stranger to the challenge of getting kids to eat their vegetables. When his son asked him about what Michael's up to with his seeds... I told him, like, well, I'm trying to make vegetables taste better. And he's like, uh, oh, okay. He says, I can be done with that. And so he's thinking, <laughs> like, great, when I'm fed these, I'll like them more. But what I'm looking at is he'll eat more. And I just know if yeah. he's eating more of these things, that's better. And so for nutrition, we know it's a win to make these vegetables more desirable. It's good news that Michael's out there making it more enjoyable to eat your vegetables. To hear more about Row 7, check out episode 367 of The Farm Report. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3. Cabot Creamery is proud to be celebrating 100 years making the world's finest dairy products. Cabot's award-winning cheddars and other dairy products stand apart because of their farmers' tireless dedication to quality and freshness, to healthy land and a sustainable future. A century after they started this journey, Cabot's farmer owners still know what matters most, family and community. The simple truth that we're stronger together than we are apart. That delicious products are the reward of a job well done. That when you love what you do this much, the best is always still to come. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Next up, we hear from the beloved chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. He stopped by Inside Julia's Kitchen during a brief trip to New York. After the interview, Jose traveled back to the Bahamas, where he's been working with World Central Kitchen to provide thousands of meals to those affected by Hurricane Dorian. Host Todd Shulkin spoke with Jose about how this life-saving organization has become the front line of relief in areas affected by natural disasters. It all started at Haleo, the Washington, D.C. restaurant that put tapas firmly on the American menu and is still a Washington dining stalwart. However, Jose has taken it all to another level with his leadership, responding to natural disasters through the humanitarian aid organization World Central Kitchen, which he founded in 2012. Perhaps Jose has become better known as the exuberant man in the fishing vest, dashing into the aftermath of hurricanes in Puerto Rico 
and now the Bahamas. What makes someone so accomplished in the kitchen want to risk it all by leaping into the storm? We're about to find out as we're thrilled to have this year's 2019 Julia Child Award recipient joining us today. Welcome to the podcast, Jose. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a delight. So first off, on a more serious note, what, what's the latest about the relief effort from the Bahamas? Well, Bahamas um, has been probably the moment that the men and women of uh, World Central Kitchen, we can say that we, we show finally the world that we are here, that they, we are here and we, we are here to do a task that, that we've been preparing for many years and that we are uh, succeeding, uh, which is providing meals and water to, to people uh, in this repair after a major hurricane or natural disaster. So in, in Bahamas, it's been one of our most complicated uh, uh, moments ever, but I think it's been one of the best missions we've ever, ever done. Um, we did, uh, we've done over um, 400,000 meals. Uh, I think half a million is just around the corner. We had uh, thousands of uh, volunteers in Bahamas that they signed to join us. We had hundreds of people every single day uh, coming to help us. We had uh, two kitchens, uh, one in Freeport and one in Nassau. We had a distribution center in Marsh Harbor. We already opened the third kitchen in Marsh Harbor uh, after two weeks and a half. We've been distributing in more than nine, ten islands with, uh, uh, with more than 50, 60, 70 foot drops every day. Six helicopters at the helm of the operation. One boat with uh, helipad. One amphibious vehicle, two seaplanes, multiple cars. This has been really an operation that we needed to raise above, and 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 was a very difficult one with so many islands and so much devastation. And and I'm very proud to see that the men and women, many of them cooks, of World Central Kitchen, really we 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 were able to 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 be there next to the people in need of a hot meal, uh, a piece of fruit, a sandwich or a bottle of water. So it sounds like you're partly saying that all the different lessons you've learned as you've been building World Central Kitchen have kind of paid off in, in, in terms of being able to tackle the, the most difficult problems? Uh, we've done bigger ones, like obviously Puerto Rico, we did uh, 4 million meals. Uh, we, we were able to influence the making of many other million meals that we don't take uh, as ours, but we know we influence uh, with our guidance others to do to do more. Uh, obviously, we've been in difficult situations like Indonesia and Mozambique and the volcano in Guatemala and the fires in California, the multiple hurricanes we've been answering in the States and in the Caribbean. Uh, but yes, this one, for a lot of reasons, uh, let me tell you, let me be quite honest. Uh, it's not like it was anybody else. Uh, nobody call us. Nobody tell us be there. Nobody is uh, expecting us to show up. Nobody make us official. But because we have this promise to to the people that when we feel it's something very big, we will show up. And especially in the most difficult circumstances, we will be there next to the, the hungry. 
Uh, yes, I can say that this one was one of those. Nobody else was there. We show up before many of the very big organizations. I can say that we were there from day one. Even the hurricane was still on the Bahamas, and we already were landing. I was myself landing already with some of my my teammates in uh, in Marsh Harbor. And, and since the moment we start, we, we only have one mission. Let's fit as many people as we can as soon as we can. And so, yes, I think we, 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 we mature. I think Bahamas, more than anything, even Indonesia was an amazing operation. And Mozambique was an amazing operation. I think Bahamas is the one that everybody uh, relies, uh, especially the, the bigger NGOs. Wow, these guys are really serious. These guys are really here. So, so I think World Central Kitchen, we will be around uh, hopefully for the years to come. And and do you think that you will also be on the ground at the Bahamas for a long time, given the the sort of lack of infrastructure and the state of devastation? Well, World Central Kitchen, we're an organization that we like to be the first ones on the ground, and more often than not, we are the last ones on the ground. We like to see how everything develops. We like to see be changing through the different phases. The people of Bahamas uh, need all the help they can get. And what we are is very creative to adapt to the situations. Uh, the people of Bahamas are going to be needing all the resources. And what we are going to be providing until things are stable in those islands of uh, the northern islands of Abacuan and Grand Bahamas is that as people will start moving in and, and until people have kitchens at home, even we need to understand that in Grand, in Abaco, in Great Abaco, the vast majority of homes, they've been totally destroyed uh, until things don't show signs of certain level of, of normalcy. Uh, I can guarantee you that uh, World Central Kitchen will be there next to the people of Bahamas like we've done in so many other events. To hear more from Todd Shulkin's interview with Jose Andres, listen to episode 63 of Inside Julia's Kitchen. For our last story this week, Kevin Barnum has some good news from the State Fair Circuit, where the creators of a very unique attraction are turning dairy into art while battling food waste. Jim Victor and Marie Pelton are sculptors, but you won't find their art at any museum. That's because Jim and Marie work with a medium that isn't designed to last. Food. For about 20 years, they've been making food art, and their butter sculptures have appeared at events ranging from the New York State Fair to Chicago's Riot Fest, where this year they built a butter sculpture of actor John Stamos. We just got done with a little tour, and during that tour, we did six butter sculptures in two months. If you've never seen a butter sculpture, there are a couple of things to know. One is that butter sculptures can be just as intricate and lifelike as marble ones. Part of Jim and Marie's sculpture for the New York State Fair this summer showed two people at a table splitting a milkshake. You can see the creases on their clothes and the texture of their hair. Another thing to know about butter sculptures is that they can be big. That New York State Fair sculpture weighed about 800 pounds, and that's not the biggest one Jim and Marie have ever made. I think it was back in 2015. It was 2,370 pounds, and it was a Paris landscape made of the President brand butter up in Times Square. And so that became the Guinness World Record butter sculpture. 
With so much butter being used, some people who see the sculptures think they might not be the best use of resources. Jim and Marie take this issue seriously. So the butter material that we get to do our sculptures with is generally waste butter, you know, that comes out of the plants. And so that means that the butter is not consumable by humans. It's not grade A butter. It's butter which has been extruded out of the system during their cleanouts. What happens to the butter after the fair ends is important to them too. In some cases, it is put in a machine called an anaerobic digester. The organic material that's in the anaerobic digester, as it decays, it gives off methane gas. And the methane gas um, is a fuel and it can be ignited and it runs uh, a turbine that creates electricity. Jim says this is a change from what dairy companies used to tell people. When I first started doing butter sculpture, they used to say things like, oh, we're donating this butter after we're done to poor people. They're all, you know, it's all going to be consumed. And it just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't the truth. Uh, You know, and I knew this was kind of ridiculous to say this stuff because, I mean, there was just obvious that you can't just put butter on sculptures and, and then take it off and have people eat it. It's just too far too contaminated. Now that less wasteful practices have become more standard, opinions of butter sculptures may be changing. We were standing there outside of the booth where the butter sculpture was being displayed. And a mother came up with a child and looked at the butter sculpture. And the mother said to the child, didn't knowing I was, I was a sculptor standing next to him, she said, that's the biggest waste of butter I've ever seen. And the little girl looked at it and she said, no, it's not. As the next generation grapples with building a sustainable world, Jim and Marie remind us that sometimes waste can be turned into beauty. That's our show. We hope this good news brought you some joy at the end of a long week. We'll be back next week with a special bonus episode looking at one of New York City's most recognizable foods. Special thanks this week to Todd Shulkin of Inside Julia's Kitchen and Lisa Held of The Farm Report. Meet and Three is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with lead production this week by H. Conley. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>